We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And last night, Lakers lost their home opener, 103-97, to to the Clippers, in a game that was competitive, but also reflected the Lakers' terrible shooting struggles, especially guard trio that ended up shooting 1-for-25 in that game. But before we get into the, the basketball and the specifics, that was a game where the Lakers fought back a couple of times. Uh, they were down by 16 at one point, I think 18 at another point, and the Lakers clawed back a couple of times in ways that last season, for example, their runs were usually uh, you know fake runs, fourth quarter down 25 and like, ah, we've cut it to 10. And it's like, yeah, it's not really it. That wasn't what it was. Lakers went uh, had another really good close to the second quarter. They ended up catching and passing the Clippers in the fourth and played some good ball. But down the stretch, they got some stops, but they weren't able to make a shot. And so that that is the story. Uh, D, when you think about last night's game, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Well, we talked about momentum a little bit in the last pod, right? And how the fickleness of the game and how... A game takes on its own life and personality and how one play here or there feels like it can either lift you up or tear you down. And I thought there were maybe two or three, maybe four of those moments over the course of the game against the Clippers where the Lakers really looked like they were landing some punches and the Clippers were, if not on the ropes, because they're a very good team and have top level players and they could always come back in the same way that the Lakers came back. Right. But that the Lakers looked like they were ready to seize on a moment. And Pat Bev had a couple of these shots, one from the corner on the right side, one from sort of the left hand um, wing area. Mm-hmm. And these were open three pointers and they just didn't fall. Reggie Miller and Candace Parker were talking about this on the broadcast about there are some shots that are momentum threes where you got, you know, you got to stop. You're on a little bit of run. You get that open corner three. You hear the crowd start to swell. And then, ah, oh, right. Yep. 
Exactly. LeBron had one of these too, Mike, from the left wing as well, where it really looked like he was feeling the moment of the game. And LeBron is very good at this, like sensing what needs to happen within the flow of the game in order to take more of the pot, right? Like, okay, here's, here is the hand I'm going to go all in on because I sense it. Yeah. Kobe was a master at this as well. Yeah. Totally. And so, and then LeBron missed that three too. Right. And so we in the first half, you asked me, like, what stood out to me? The it was the context of the shooting woes. It wasn't just that they shot poorly. It was that they were in this game and there were moments where if one or two or all of these shots fall and when you shoot nine for 40 something from three, it's not crazy to think three more threes fall over the course of a game but some specific shots I felt like oh it just it was reflective of the fact that man like not only did they shoot poorly they missed almost every crucial jump shot that they needed to make and you can't have both it's like the other day Pete you said look if you're going to be small you can't not be able to shoot too well you can't do both like if you're going to be a bad shooting team, right? Can you, if you're only going to make nine threes, can you make some of the important ones? Can't some of those be the ones that you really need Mm -hmm. if you're only going to hit nine of them? And that's where I was just like, oh man, they just needed some of these to fall. So Mike, there was a spirit I thought the Lakers were showing over the course of the game and the comebacks that Pete talked about. What was your view from the ground and some of the moments that I was talking about, but just in general, like the spirit that they showed in order to come back and how did that translate within the arena? What you guys were talking about with the shot miss, the, the key shot misses and stuff like that. Those are things that you can feel tangibly in the building and it's you can tell on TV, but you can tell a little bit more because the swell it, you just notice around you. And, and I, I've always said this since I came to L.A. that I've been very impressed with the just general basketball knowledge of the fans in the building there. It's not everybody, but there are a lot of people in there that have seen good basketball. And so they can feel when good basketball is coming and they can feel when a tide turns and, and they cheer at the right times and they get frustrated at the right times. And that's not the case in every arena still although the league has gotten better, certainly. So that was going on. But LeBron, as usual, summarizes things pretty well after the game. And his basic takeaway was, look, we played the right way and we lost. We didn't hit enough shots, but we got them in the right spots. I think this was a little different from Golden State. And then they got some of the right players in the right shot in the right places to hit shots. It wasn't just, you know, they were like the other team was begging certain players to take shots repeatedly. And of course they did want Russ to shoot and he didn't make any shots, but the Lakers like Beverly was one for seven. Most of those were corner threes. Those are the ones that he's supposed to make. Kendrick Nunn was 0 for seven. A lot of those were wide open shots uh, from the perimeter. Then some that he just were not good shots that he forced underneath with Zubats bearing over him. LeBron missed some open shots. As you mentioned, AD missed a couple. So it was just a, it was a game that you can kind of forgive in terms of the final result, um, based on the competitive level on defense. But it also, I think Pete showed some of the weaknesses of the roster in the first and third quarters. What happened? Well, the Lakers got incredibly foul happy. And instead of just staying straight up, they swiped down and they put the Clippers at the line a lot. But part of that was because the Clippers were able to attack 
multiple mismatches in multiple spots where they just had a bigger guy going at a smaller guy. And on the one hand, the Lakers did compete and that's great. And that they'll win some games because of that. But on the other hand, they're going to have these same mismatches for against a lot of teams as the year goes on based on what their personnel is. And I, I'm sure we'll get into this. There are probably some personnel groupings that they can lean more on. Uh, maybe the, in, whether it's the starting lineup or the bench, there are a couple guys I think that should be playing more. And, and Darvinham did adjust that even in the second half, which I think is encouraging. But yeah, the, the mix of how the, the building felt and then how the Clippers attacked, um, I thought ended up in the result, Pete. But it was a, for Darvinham and for the players, it was a better feeling post game despite the disappointment than it was after the Golden State game. Yeah, where we're at right now is we got to get the train back on the tracks, right? And so, Biggest part of that is let's play some freaking defense. And that's something that I thought we did last night. And I want to address that idea of the guys guarding up that you were talking about. And that was something that happened in the first quarter and third quarter in particular, where we got into the penalty very early and we fouled a lot of jump shooters. And so we have a lot of these mismatches where we talk about going over the top. The Clippers are one of the preeminent over the top teams in the NBA in terms of shot making between PG, uh, Marcus Morris and Kawhi played last night. By the way, it was great to see Kawhi and John Wall out there. I love seeing just the great players of the NBA get back. And so just good to have them back. And so anyway, the Clippers are a team that and then Zoo in the middle, who had a great game, provides a certain level of physicality where the Clippers play into a lot of our natural weaknesses as a roster. And that's part of the reason why I was encouraged with our defense. We didn't lose that game because of how we defended. We lost the game because of how, how we played offense and how we shot in particular. That's going to happen with this roster. Uh, and part of LeBron's comments was like, look, we're, I'm not going to go over what this roster can't do every single night. Like we know what this team is. Um, and that said, I think it's going to normalize to some degree. I don't think we're going to shoot 22% from three, but what we can do is learn how to defend up. And that idea of fouling jump shooters over the top is one of those temptations. When you have, when you have smaller defenders that are trying to defend a bigger player in good faith, meaning that they're doing everything they can, they're doing everything right. How you teach a guy that, hey, this guy's got a four or five inch uh, height advantage over you. This is what you have to do to win as often as possible. One of the temptations that a player like that is going to face is, you know, you say at the end, contest high, get your hand up. And you saw LeBron do this a few times in a few different situations where after a play, after a whistle, he'd just raise his hand straight up and talk to the guy, be like, hey, hand straight up. Just get your hand straight up. Don't foul. Because at that point, that's where that height is going to take over. You've done your job. If they're shooting a turnaround jumper over the top of you, and you've got a hand up, you've done what you can do. Where you lose that is giving them cheap free points at the free throw line, which constituted a lot. Like they only scored 103 points with a lot of these advantages. And we gave them a bunch of freebies from the free throw line by fouling jump shooters. But the way that we fronted the post, the way that we would rotate from the low man, you know, send help from uh, from the low side, the battling for position defensively, we scrapped in a way, Darius, that I was really encouraged by that I think is going to have like th there's a separate element of this where I think Darwin found some lineups and Mark Mike was alluding to that uh, that I'll get into maybe next time it swings back around to me. But that level of if you're going to be small, you got to scrap. And I, I think that we showed a degree of that. We pressured the ball. We turned them over quite a bit. 
for once, we didn't have a lot of turnovers. This is something you've been really on top of, D, is like, hey, we've been really turnover prone. And so that was encouraging. And so I just thought we saw a this is how we will play. The result will vary from game to game, but this is how we need to play to be good defensively. And I was very encouraged by that. Yeah. So the Lakers had 12 steals last night. 12 steals is a massive number. Yes, it is. And they only had nine turnovers themselves. I put together a little thread of pregame thoughts um, yesterday before the game. And one of the things I highlighted is that the Lakers need to play in transition more. And in order to play in transition, you have to play defense. And I thought yesterday was a much better example of how you play defense as a smaller team against teams that are looking to leverage their size Mm -hmm. against you, which is do your work early as often as you can in order to push guys further away from the basket whenever they're making catches. Because after they then make a catch, they are not in a position to just shoot. Oftentimes, they need to try to go somewhere in order to then shoot. And when they go somewhere, they are then doing it against a smaller player and multiple smaller players that are going to try to attack you once you turn around or get into a certain part of the floor where your focus then is on the basket and not on your surroundings. I think that word attack is super important. Like, Talk to me about how smaller defenders attack in those type of scenarios. So the Lakers got a bunch of like reach in steals and poke from behind steals and like getting and and like a, a lot of times you think of a steal as like, oh, like you jumped a passing lane, right? Like, oh, like the way that you would picture a cornerback or a safety in the NFL, like tracking the quarterback's eyes and then like, oh, there's the ball over the middle and then boom, out of nowhere, here comes the defensive back and he swoops in and goes the other direction for a pick six. That's not what the Lakers were doing. The Lakers were like, oh, they were, it's like on a running back play or something, right? Where the running back is like sweeping out to the right-hand side and suddenly there's all of these defenders chasing him. And it's just like, and then he cuts back upfield and suddenly one of the linebackers from way behind the play comes and like gets a strip from behind. That's how the Lakers were swarming defensively. And that's how they were attacking the guy with with the ball. A lot of times when you talk about shooting over the top, Pete, there's a rhythm that offensive players play with. It's like dribble, turn, pivot. Oh, here I am. I'm in my sweet spot. I'm shooting right over the top of you now because I found my rhythm that I practice every single day. That's exactly it. It's that these are practice shots. This is how I do it. This is is the sequence of movements that I make to feel comfortable to make this shot. And if I do that, I've done it thousands of times, probably going to knock that down. Mike, this is what Kobe was great at, and he would yeah. talk about this a ton. It's like it's why he practiced the specific moves that he practiced. And it's and he talked about this. It was this idea of once I get to this spot, I've shot this shot literally thousands of times, not only in games, but in practice. And so at that point, it no longer matters if a defender, how close a defender is to me where their hands are which speaks to that idea of like just have high hands like don't reach in don't try to like oh i'm going to get up there and block it because odds are you're just going to foul them and you're not actually not going to do so much to like even disrupt their shot on a really good mm-hmm. player and so play position defense 
make or miss league and go the other way. But what the Lakers were doing is right before they were trying, right before the offensive guy was going to get into that spot, they were then reaching in and poking the ball away. It's just like, oh, right before you're about to gather and get into your comfort zone, they were swarming and they got a lot of steals that way and they were able to play in transition. And so that was a key point to me, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's both things, right? So that that did enable them to play in transition and to whittle back down in leads. And it also led to a lot of those fouls. And I think when you're a newer team and you're practicing, the coaching staff, they're not calling those, or even if you bring refs in, they're not calling those fouls in practice. And so th- these guys that are like, hey, look how aggressive I'm being, Darvin. Like, look, that they're not, you're not going to blow the whistle there. But then when the ref starts blowing the whistle early in the first quarter, it's hard to adjust because that's what the muscle memory has been teaching. And how do you even simulate like Kawhi Leonard or Marcus Morris in practice when you don't have that type of player on your team, right? Like you only got LeBron and AD or you're only like over the top shooters and they provide, like it's hard to practice on something when you don't have the actual type of player that can do the thing that you're trying to stop. And this goes to the point that Darius was just making about Kobe. And I, I feel like I always want to, reference Kobe's career shooting percentage in a way and because that's one of the knocks right that when when you're having the goat debate and people like yeah but he wasn't as efficient well I always felt like Kobe was preparing to even during a regular season to try and hit and get the shots that only come when the game is tight and you can't get the other shots and were some of those bad shots relative to what the game has turned into in efficiency yes but that's not how the league was when he came in that's that's not what people weren't obsessed about field goal percentage. They were the only the only things that showed up in the newspaper back before the Internet. And I used to keep I used to get the newspaper to total up fantasy basketball stats uh, when I was in high school in 1996. And it was just points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks. That was all that was in there in the box score. And the points always looked pretty good. The efficiency wasn't mentioned. And later it became that way. But I just always I always feel like I have to throw that in with Kobe mm-hmm. um, and to, to move this over to Kawhi, who takes some of those types of shots. So Kawhi came in. He didn't play in the first quarter and he came in and just completely wrecked the Clippers rhythm. The Clippers had when Kawhi checked in, they were up 12 with 10 assists. He came in immediately canned two jumpers. And that's when it's like, oh, OK, here come the Clippers. And then the Lakers want to go on this huge run. And the Clippers were minus 12 with zero assists after Kawhi checked in Mm -hmm. for the rest of that first half. But as we saw later in the game, when things got a little tighter, Kawhi was able to hit some of those shots that when the pressure was high and when the defense was on him. And that that ended up being a big difference. The Lakers kind of kept playing the right way and making the extra pass. It wasn't a ton of just like LeBron or AD ISOs, although there were some of those. And they didn't make the open shots after the swing swing. And uh, like LeBron should have had 15 assists, man. He, I really thought he was great in a lot yeah, of ways. He was. he was, he was engaged defensively. He was making the right plays. He was getting guys just that, that play that he does where he attracts the defense on purpose and then whips the ball over the top across the cross court pass. That's just such a beautiful pass. Only a couple guys in the league can do it. And mm-hmm. it was just like miss after miss after miss ah. after miss. And, but they kept at it. Like they kept pressuring and, and that's why they, continue to have a chance and and so there are the there are positives and negatives to take away from it Uh, but I guess the the overall takeaway right from because guys are always going to be positive is if we keep playing with this type of defensive intensity and focus then 
and that's what LeBron said. That's what Darvin Ham said. Then we will win the next game. I guess that's that's what their mindset has to be. Hundred percent, and that's the type of thing that you have to do on a game to game daily basis for it to become habit. And that to me was always the first step back is to build a credible defense. And I think that we are on our way to doing that. We'll talk more about lineup stuff. I thought he did uh, lineup stuff uh, in the second half in particular that really helped facilitate that. But what I want to talk about in the second half of this pod is about Russell Westbrook. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So fans and detractors of Russell Westbrook alike, one thing that no one's ever disputed is that he's one of the most athletic players to ever play his position and is one of the one of one of the most pressure on the rim downhill guys throughout his career that's ever played. Right now, what you may think the value of that is and what you think of his overall game different conversation. But in terms of this dude is a blur and just like a real force of nature athletically, that's something that's never been in dispute. And I want to compare and contrast him with Lonnie Walker right now. I've, I talked a lot of the, over the summer about how this system and this style is very conducive to dribble penetration and guys who can get downhill. What I've seen with Russ recently is actually very concerning from a perspective of he's like a baseball pitcher who used to throw 102 miles an hour, Araldus Chapman or someone like that, who now throws 95, 96 miles an hour, which is still a good fastball, uh, but it's not the overwhelming angle ruiner. Russ has always been one of the great angle ruiners of all time. And there was a play in the fourth quarter where they had Zoo on him for a good part of the game and especially down the stretch. And Zoo wasn't really guarding him at all. But on this particular play, Zoo made a mistake and the ball got swung to Russ on the, at the top of the key. And Zoo started to close out to him harder than you probably should close out to, to Russ. And Zoo caught himself and Russ was already, and Russ did not want to be taking those jumpers by the end of the game. And Russ was already, oh, I'm going to attack this closeout and tried to rack to going to his right. And Zoo was able to close and recover, meaning that Zoo, a very big person, right? His momentum is moving forward. He's able to plant his front foot and then shift his weight to the side and slide just enough to 
get chest to chest with Russ on his drive. And I was like, wow, watching that. I was really, it was really uh, stark to see that with Russ. Cause that to me, that's the type of play where Russ, even a year ago, honestly, like he was ruining those angles and he's, not getting and he's getting right to the basket on that and that's the thing he's not getting to the basket that's my big observation and you contrast that with Lonnie who's just having a blast and I'm having a blast watching Lonnie Walker but that's what a an athletic guard should look like in this type of offense and style is there's a lot of opportunities to get to the rim and just get an extra step on the defender and so seeing Russ Darius this often not be able to get to the rim at all is something that is is very bleak in terms of his game because he doesn't have a floater that pull up elbow jumper that he used to be so great at is it's just gone and so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I'm seeing a Russell Westbrook that can't get to the rim and that has some serious consequences so while you were talking right there Pete I was actually looking at Russ's stats through two games and he's taken 23 shots and he's made seven of them. And last night he went over 11. Right. And so that skews things. Obviously, his first game, he actually shot. OK, but the part that's tricky is that. So he's seven for 23 through two games of those 23 shots. Nine, nine have been three pointers. Yeah. And so, OK, so nine have been three pointers. Eleven have been shots within five feet and so mike the evolution of basketball has often been almost like a money ball approach right where it's been the erasure of the mid-range game and a lot of times shot profiles from most players ideally are going to be shots in the restricted area or shots from behind the arc right and to pete's point if Russ is skewing more towards like 40% of his shots or 35% of his shots are from behind the arc. That's not the shot profile you actually want from Russell Westbrook. He is not a good enough shooter to do those things. The thing that Pete highlighted in terms of not getting to the basket enough, like that's true. And the play against Zoo that you mentioned, Pete, that that definitely stood stood out to me as well, because the whole idea of putting a center on Russell Westbrook, it's something that like we had talked about actually, actually mm-hmm. offline the other day about like, OK, well, who's going to guard who? Right. And. The Lakers did this to Russell Westbrook when Russ played for the Rockets. In the bubble, when the Lakers went to to the championship, they put AD on Russ. And this was a centerless Rockets team, right? They had traded Clint Clint Capella. They went all in on playing small. Their center was P.J. Tucker. And they played a true five-out system, right? It was like Tucker and Covington and then all of those, those guys. And they put AD on Russ. And AD pretty much handled Russ effectively. But... It you actually needed to be sort of that caliber of athlete in order to keep up with Russ at that point. Like you couldn't have put necessarily Zubots on on him at that point because Russ would have mm-hmm. wrecked him. He would have been yes. too athletic and too quick and too explosive. He at least would have gotten to the paint a lot more. The part that stands out to me, Pete, and, and I'll kick this to you, Mike, is that. So I mentioned that Russ has taken what, 11 shots 
within five feet of the basket. So basically around the restricted area, because like Pete said, he doesn't have have a floater. He's only made five of those. Right. And so he's shooting 45 percent or so within five feet. And that's if you're going to be a guard and you're going to basically be an attack guard who's going to try to score around the basket, that number's got to be in between 55 and 60 percent for you to be a truly like high level offensive player. And things are skewing in the wrong direction for Russ as a scoring threat. And it's going to be tricky, Mike, if other teams can put their center on Russell Westbrook, regardless of what the lineup construction looks like. And it's one of the reasons why I thought that I'm not questioning Ham here. There weren't a lot of options down the stretch, but the reconfiguring of the matchups, it gave Tyloo a a bit of an out a little bit Mm -hmm. by allowing them to shift the matchups back where Zubats no longer had to guard AD. And so, and then Zubats could be more of a paint protector because one of the times that the Lakers went on their run, and we haven't even mentioned this at all, was after AD fell, he stayed in the game. He was clearly hurt, but he stayed in the game. And AD had already hit a couple Mm -hmm. of threes. And so Zubats was like, oh, I got to guard AD. He's hit a couple of threes. AD's laboring. He's not getting up and down the court well at all. And so he was behind the play offensively a lot. But that just allowed LeBron to attack the basket because Zubats was pulled away from the rim, guarding an AD who could barely move, but he hit a couple of jumpers already. And that difference in being able to be pulled away from, from the basket versus being able to control the restricted area and guard a guy by playing out of the dunker spot, basically defensively. Defensively, Zubats was in the dunker spot a lot. That changed the momentum of the game a little bit, and it did promote more jump shooting from the Lakers, and those jump shots did not fall. Well, let me start with AD and then get to Russ, because AD, I think we can wrap, wrap up pretty quickly. But when he took that fall, and this was early in the third quarter, and the Lakers had battled back from the first half deficit, and they were right there, and they were kind of going back and forth, and they were starting to get somewhat of a rhythm. AD was picking up some steam. I mean, I talked to him after the game briefly, and as somebody that has a bad back, uh, that that really hurts a lot. And it's not just the back that hurts after that. It's the hip and it's the hamstring. Like It's all connected. Mm. And so, you know, AD was it's not like the difference is this isn't this isn't the type of thing where structurally. Right. He's got I have structural back issues, right, that are going to keep popping up. This is just something that's been a little bit more direct and he's been trying to deal with. So I think that I don't I think that that's going to end up being okay as he continues to rehab back from it. But the Clippers went on a what was it a 13-0 run or something when AD mm-hmm. had to take a seat there. And then the Lakers had to expend so much energy to get back into it that the Clippers just had to make a couple shots after. So that was just unfortunate, right? And we've mm-hmm. seen this happen throughout the last couple of years with AD is that even if it's just within a game, you know, when he goes out, they don't have the type of depth behind that to be able to account for things. And and so that was unfortunate. And that might be the biggest reason why they lost the game. Uh, AD played, what did he play at total? I think 32 mm-hmm. minutes. You know, if he played 37 yeah. minutes uh, like LeBron, then then that's that's that five minute stretch right there. It's in a mm-hmm. six point game. So now to get to Russ, I thought Pete really nailed uh, that point about the getting to the rim. And that was one of the separators for Russ, but 
even even when he was still getting to the rim, Russ wasn't finishing great at the rim. That's something that it, that it also peeled off the last couple of years and in that Houston series where because he's so sped up, he's not and he doesn't have quite that kind of touch um, at the rim. That So it was still even that wasn't the most efficient, uh, although it was still, I think, it was something that would that could be an overall boost to a team, but not to the level of the the top level superstars. And alas, here we are today. And if he's not getting to the rim there, then his main value yesterday was actually on <laughs> yeah. the defensive end, specifically in the matchup with Kawhi Leonard and fronting the post and being athletic there. But that isn't something that you necessarily need. Uh, every day and it's also not something that you necessarily need like in the starting lineup as compared to somebody like JTA who I I think that we we should at least talk about briefly and like his minutes went up to 22 from 14 in the opener and it just gives the Lakers a little bit more size a little bit more fight Uh, he he has not shot the ball well to start the season he did make one three um, out of his four but he cut to the rim one time for a dunk and like he had three assists and just was just sort of making things happen. And I, I, I'm going kind of to bring the, one last layer into this um, to try and copy Darius's thing. I'm going to hit on four things. That make <laughs> <you> pick. Uh, the, <laughs> the, and I do this all the time too, by the way, that was not a critique of Darius. Uh, Darvin Ham, I thought was brilliant in the way that he handled a question about Russ's comments about coming off the bench and how that may have, absolutely led in his word absolutely led to uh, hamstring soreness which of course he ended up not missing any time for and darvin without kind of going too hard and putting and throwing russ under the bus for that he he basically said like as an organization we would never put a player in a position um, to hurt themselves mentally spiritually which i thought was really sharp and then he and then without again without calling out his player he reaffirmed his prerogative to make the moves that will help the Mm -hmm. team win. And in other words, the way that I took that was, if we think it's best that Russ comes off the bench, he's going to do it again. And it's got nothing. There's Mm -hmm. no injury part of this. That's not, no, that's not how things work. That's right. Uh, That's not how NBA basketball works. Whatever percent of players in the league, would it be 80? Uh, The the starting five Mm -hmm. versus the 15 on the roster. Like, you know, no, you don't get to say that that potentially is an injury uh, causer. So, and Darvin dealt with that. And, and so here, here we now have another game of evidence. And we had that pregame comment. And I don't know the value that is there in the starting lineup uh, versus what one what could be had in that different role off the bench. So I just wanted to bring Darvin into it. And Pete, I know you had teased kind of thinking about some lineup stuff. We don't have a lot of time to get into all of it, but I am curious your initial thoughts as to what you saw that worked the best and what you think is most potentially sustainable for this team to get wins now uh, with what the roster is. So the short answer to the lineup question, because I do want to touch on a couple of things that I think you nailed uh, with with respect to Russ. Uh, I, just being a little bit bigger when like when we are playing LeBron at the five, I was so mad in the text thread last night that like, I, I don't know if you could tell that was one of the oh, angriest. Oh, you don't know if we could tell, <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes when I'm mad about basketball, I will send you guys paragraphs, right? Cause as like my outlet, it wasn't that it was like, it was a frustration with like, you know that meme where like I, I sent it to you guys yesterday where like the mom is screaming at the kid in the back like why can't you just be normal and the kids in the back like ah right I felt that way about the Lakers 
both in terms of the roster and like, why don't we have any forwards? And then when we, then, then it's like, why are we playing four guards and Matt Ryan? And I'm, I'm just like, stop being weird. Right. And so in the set, when you have a micro ball lineup, for example, which is LeBron at the five, pretty much everybody else on the floor has to be, if they're going to be a guard or whatever, you got to be able to defend up. You got to be scrappy. You got to be able to fight. Like you have to be able to do the things that Russell Westbrook was doing on the defensive end. Like that's why when you said on the defensive end, Mike, that might not be something that we need every night on most teams. That would be true on this particular team. Like we've talked about Pat Bev guarding up and being our small forward. Oftentimes it's actually been Russ because Russ is a bigger, stronger player. Well, let, let me, let me just clarify one thing. Yes, that's it's always going to be good to have somebody battle like that athletically with Russ and, and to be to be able to deploy him. In that sense is great. But if, if he's starting and what that does to the spacing yes. and what that does to what how the teams are going to play, like he can come in off the bench. There'll be somebody on the floor yes. that it's useful, even off of a bench for him to play that way defensively with. I just think that like starting off yes. a game, that's that's there the. Pluses and minuses don't. I, I totally agree. And the if you want to skip to the last page of the the book, uh, like I agree, Russ should come off the and like it's the funny thing because it's probably what's best for Russ too because the remember last year we talked I talked about the responsible adults versus the bench groups. Basketball has very much become more codified in terms of this part of the game is this way and this part of the game is that way. It's always sort of been this way, but over the last ten years, especially, I've noticed this more and more is that wraparound that we talk about the last four minutes of the first quarter, first four, five, six minutes of the second quarter, and then the same in the third and fourth is more open court basketball. And it's a smaller groups than the starters are. The starters tend to be bigger and more lumbering. You have your zoos one night and your Sabonis is another night and Valanciunas and DeAndre Ayton, just big human beings, you know, whereas that middle part of the game, the wraparound is really more Russell Westbrook style basketball. And he used to have such a fastball that he could do that against the starters too. And he's like, he's got that strength too, right? But in the absence of that, if he's not able to get to the rim against the starters in particular, I really think that coming off the bench would be best for him too. And it's that spot where we do need, we are playing those four guard groups. We do need, oh yeah, you're a a one slash two. Yeah, we need you to guard a three much a much easier ask to do that in that part of the game than it is with the starters and so i i totally agree with you mike that 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 would be what's best for the team and what's best for him so i'm curious where that goes wrap us up here d no i just think that this is a good conversation about russ um i agree with so many things that that have and said, my question about Russ in general is the level of defensive fight and tenacity that he showed against Kawhi. Is he going to do that every single night? And is that the best allocation of resources around what his salary slot is? Of course, if not. he's not going to be able to play well offensively and it's not right. And so that's the that's the last page of the book, Pete. Right. It's not like, OK, coming off yeah. the bench is chapter six in a 40 mm. chapter book 
right? Because in the big picture, the evolution of this team is best going to be towards lineups that feature LeBron and Anthony Davis and have more players like Juan Toscano Anderson, who are probably better mm-hmm. than Juan Toscano Anderson at pretty much every level of the game in order to complement and supplement them in ways that then enhance the things that Lonnie Walker can do well and the things that that and properly slot people back in to the right places. And so, look, I was happy to see Russ compete defensively. I would have loved to have seen one or two of these jumpers fall from any number of players. And so I don't want a single Russ out there at all. Patrick Beverly, make a corner three. Kendrick Nunn, do what you do. Kendrick Nunn, make some shots and One-handed stop passes. throwing yeah. balls into high-hand yeah. turnovers against the pick and roll. Like there are small things that need to be cleaned up with this team that can exponentially make them better over the course of a single basketball game that will put them in better positions to win. And so there's an optimistic view of this. I don't want to frame it too optimistically within the context against a Clippers team. It was opening night for them. Kawhi played 20 minutes or whatever he, he played and yada, yada, yada. But I said this before the game that I'm not looking for massive leaps from the Lakers. I'm looking for small, tangible improvements night to night to night. And I wish it would have come with a win, but we saw some of those steps in game two. I'm looking forward to more of them in game three. And I am looking forward to a win soon because this group needs it. And Pete, I would add on just a tiny little summary thought to that. And I think Darius is right. Like the short term, there is a way to optimize what they're doing. Um, to give them the best chance to win. But that is a it's that is not enough. Like even if they not. play perfectly within that and everybody plays hard and the shots go down, right? It's not enough for them to win at the highest levels. Then uh, they're probably going to need to make some kind of a trade and yes. find a wing, right? It, to, to ultimately get yes. this team to where it wants to go as the season goes on. But in the short term, they got closer to what that optimal thing is in game two than they were in game one. Um, and And I still think that there's enough kind of requisite belief in the, the vibe, that kind of mm-hmm. stinky vibe from the, the end of the preseason, Agreed. that wasn't there last night. And that's good. You know, so that it was the missed shots sucked, but it wasn't this kind of uh, lethargy and uncertainty that was there. So uh, they've made some progress there. Just, you know, ways to go still. Let's go get a win on Sunday. Lakers versus Portland, 1230 uh, Pacific time. We will be back on Monday to talk about how that went. But until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Rebound of Lonnie. Three seconds left. Van Exel to win it. It's on the way. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. With his eighth block shot. An NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans okay, sticking so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed: a Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston, of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe, hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane, back for Gasol. Pretty pass, and it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two, two one. Miss it. Unbelievable. It's over. Shot clock out of five. 
Bryant. Yeah. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Add insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.